Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. All right, welcome. Welcome to Full Prefrontal, Exposing the Mysteries of Executive Function. I am your host, Sucheta Kamath. I believe we have been together on this journey, uh, finding ways to connect neuroscience, psychology, science of education, helping children, adults become independent, helping parents to take care of their children by understanding the sciences and best practices, whether they are interpersonal or not. And in this journey, I have met some incredible folks, incredible leaders, uh, incredible partners who are committed to this work. And it is beyond um, uh, joy for me to have uh, our guest return to talk to us about uh, his expertise and his second book, uh, Dr. Bill Strixrud. Before I introduce you uh, to some of those who haven't heard his previous interview with me, please go back to the archives and find that episode. It's absolutely worth, and more importantly, by both of uh, his books and his co-authors. But before I kind of kick the conversation, um, one thing, because we're going to talk about parenting, we're going to talk about this idea of uh, improving connections with our children, communication skills. Um, this story uh, kind of stood out for me that I thought I'll share. Uh, so many of you, um, you know, I, I consider parenting uh, to be an act of courage. Um, courage to be with little people who depend on you. We love them, but we may not have the courage to love them unconditionally because the way they behave, act, think, or assert their own rights to be their little people. So the American uh, filmmaker, writer, actor, and artist, um, um, John Waters was once interviewed uh, on Terry Gross's Fresh Air. And um, what was so striking that he was describing his relationship with his parents. And uh, they were very fond of him, even though um, John Waters was a little odd, I would say slightly odd. And uh, he describes that as a child, he was obsessed, obsessed with car accidents. <laughs> and now, if you have a child that's obsessed with car accidents, you're going to freak out. <laughs> and your gut impulse is to kind of abort that mission, stop that child from being obsessed, and veer their attention. Guess what John Waters' mother did? Now, she did not have a, a degree in psychology or speech pathology, or she was just an ordinary, amazing, insightful parent. You know what she did? She took, she would take him to uh, to the junkyards and walk around with him. And he would be excitedly walking around saying, ooh, look at that car that got crushed. And eventually he would create scenes and act out these car accidents. One of the most beautiful things she did is she allowed that expression. She participated, made connections, and demonstrated her unconditional acceptance of this little boy and his interesting, inquisitive mind. Now, it may strike you as odd, but that's just your personal preference, baby. But Lastly, the way he introduced his most recent book, he fondly remembers uh, his his parents, uh, and he talked about that. He he said, "My parents were very very conservative, but they demonstrated this incredible acceptance." And he says, "John and Patricia Waters, thank you for giving me the foundation of good taste to rebel against." <laughs> that was his tribute <laughs> to him. So, with that said, let's figure out how to become John Waters' mother. Uh, and I hope our stressors are lesser than hers were, but <laughs> she was so graceful. Um, so Dr. Um, William Stixrud is a clinical neuropsychologist, founder of Stixrud Group, uh, as well as faculty member at the Children's National Medical Center and assistant professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the, at the George Washington University School of Medicine. He's also the co-author with Ned Johnson. We have to get um, Ned on the podcast as well of uh, the national best-selling books, I would say, the um, the book, The Self-Driven Child that was published um, uh, a few years ago. And now it's been published in 18 countries and translated into 17 languages. Uh, and particularly, 
uh, you were saying, <laughs> you have a great presence in China. <laughs> and they also have this second book, which we're going to talk about. It's called, What Do You Say? Talking with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. And um, such a joy to be with you. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's really great to be with you again. So as you heard me talk about <laughs> uh, this this little story about John Waters, I was just wondering as a psychologist, what do you think about that approach? Well, you know, in, in both our books, we talk about what we, what we consider to be the postulates of motivation. And the first one is you can't make a kid do something against his will. And the second one is you can't make them want what they don't, what they don't want. And the third one is you can't make them not want what they want. You know, <laughs> I love it. You know, I, I live in a very blue state. And when I used to do psychotherapy, a lot of parents, if the kids were interested in guns, you know, they wanted me to try to talk the kid out of being interested in guns, which is just the wrong use of energy. What we want to do is show empathy. It's not pathological to be interested in guns. And, and when, when the parents changed their energy and just showed more interest in it, bought some catalogs, very often the kid's interest in it waned, went into something else. But I think that, that when we fight it, we try to change it. Kids hold on tighter. Oh, go ahead, Bill. No, I, I just think it's a brilliant uh, way to do this. And, and um, certainly many kids in the autism spectrum, we, we, try to, we try to steer them away from their intense interests. And, and, and I think in many ways, what we want to do is use them as, as much as we can. And I think to your point, I always say that Interest is a sign of willingness, desire, and commitment to channel energy. And, and if there's a motivational mismatch, that means you're more motivated to get kids to do something they don't want to, and they're least motivated to engage, you're going to have battle of the bulges. And people respond to that with further inappropriate ways of handling it, and then it becomes a very unrestful uh, home and I really love your emphasis uh, on in your subtitle like happy home. So let's begin with the the first question that I have for you is um, the the foundation here is even though you use communication as a vehicle, uh, but you you're really talking about the art of connection yeah. and and I think it's the art of people management. But managing people sounds like you want to control them, but you're talking about deep, meaningful, forming connections with kids. So tell me a little bit what was your thought about that, and as a psychologist, uh, what do you see? Uh, uh, has changed in the culture that you have prioritized that? Because it's a commonsensical thing. We as humans want to connect. So we know that a close connection with parents is about the nearest thing you can get to a silver bullet in terms of protecting kids from, from the harmful effects of stress and negative experiences. And, and yet, especially in, in communities where affluent communities and kids in high achieving schools, kids on average don't feel as close to their parents. Uh, as kids in, in, in middle class schools or even kind of lower class families, um, and and so I, we we started out. Actually, what happened was that our agent, um, at, when the self driven child was doing well, said it's time to write a second book. He said, just people love the the the, the language you give them in the self driven child. Write a book with more of that about communicating with kids. And we thought, well, you know, between the two of us, we've been communicating with kids one on one for sixty five years professionally. And, and so we, we can probably do this. And in our first book, we place a strong emphasis on a sense of control, which I think is the, besides communicating to kids that they're deeply loved, is the most important thing we can do for them, is help them develop, develop a healthy sense of control of their own life. When we thought about, you know, book about communication, ultimately communication is for connection. And so we, we thought about what, what do we know about how to really deeply connect with kids in a way that, uh, that builds that strong connection, that builds that, that relationship that provides that, that, that really protective um, hmm. effect uh, for, for kids. You know, I think the uh, the a minute ago you were talking about uh, Sunya Luther's work. Uh, uh, she's been a guest on my podcast yeah, as well, yeah. who studies affluent communities and parenting. And uh, there are two main issues uh, that you also write about in the book is 
perceived excessive pressure. I mean, both parties, children and parents, feel incredible pressure to succeed or to do well or have academic, in quotes, success by hook or crook. (laughs) That means if I'm going to come and drop the printed copy that was in the printer that the kid forgot, I'm going to do it. If that (laughs) means I need to send an email to the teacher to advocate for Billy's absence, then he missed participation in the project, I'm going to do it. Because then I'm propping this kid for success because the grade matters. Somehow that grade means some sort of uh, admission to some college and then eventually some good paying job. But the biggest thing that's getting compromised is that motivation. Why, Why am I doing what I'm doing? But the second thing also you talk about is the lack of closeness to parents. And I think the barrier I, as I was reading your book, um, and in my practice, private practice, I've seen that a lot, that, um, a lot of parents don't know how to be close to their children once they become pre-adolescent. Something about that change, they become either freaked out or they feel these are grown-ups and they should know how to manage themselves yeah, or something. Yeah. Can you yeah. speak a little bit about that? Well, I think what often what happens when kids move into adolescence, pre-adolescence, is that, that the parents feel they don't want my input. They don't want to be as close to me uh, as they used to. And it's not true. Kids want, kids at all ages, they want a strong connection with their parents. It's just just different. Uh, Just that we shift. They don't want to sit in our laps (laughs) (laughs) anymore. You know, they don't want to constantly be with us. And certainly after puberty, peers become like crack cocaine in terms of the rewarding effects in the brain. And and so that, 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 and, and they, we evolve for, to move away from our family, to, 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 to focus on peers and move away from our family. But yet, we, there's plenty of ways to maintain strong connections with kids in a way that they feel deeply loved, that they feel supported, that they feel approved of, that they feel they, they feel that we're proud of them. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think it's more challenging in some ways. I have, my, I have, I have a, a, a granddaughter in pre-puberty who, who kind of gives me the message sometimes that, you know, I, I'm kind of done with you, and 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 yet, the, the, very often when I get her, she, she's 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 she still clearly wants to connect with me. Tells me everything. I pick her up from gymnastics twice a week, and she just blah 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 blah. And uh, so I, I think we we can do it. Um, yeah. You know, the funny thing is, uh, one one thing. Uh, sorry, this is a sidebar. Um, I mean, it's very much to what you're talking about. But um, so I don't know. Every family has one. Uh, video sender in their family, like, you know, Ooh, watch this video. It's funny. Um, And that's me and my family. So I'm bombarding my family, but there was a great little video that I saw, which just makes me, my heart dances with joy, but also makes me cry to see. So there's a video of uh, these grandparents who are coming out of the airport. um, And, uh, and they're wearing dinosaur suits. (laughs) Okay, they're coming to, and the funniest part is the the grandkids have worn dinosaur suits to greet them. And so they both have not planned it, and they see, and you see this reunion. It is so fun. Oh, that's great. And heartwarming. <laughs> and I think one thing, if I may say, that is missing the ingredient is play, that not a lot of families are playing with each other. Yeah. They're not being yeah. fun with each other. One of the best ways to build connection is that right C- completely i mean I, when i used to um do therapy w- with parents and to say I, I want to set the highest goal of simply enjoying your kid you know, just be, be just jo- be enjoying love that be, being enjoying being together because then the kid perceives himself or herself as a joy producing organism as opposed to a, fr- a frustration producing organism or a noise or anxiety producing organism and it, and i just think that um, in, in both our books, we, we emphasize I mean, in, the, in the new book, you know, we, we talk more about the use of empathy and validation as ways of com- connecting deeply where, where we let kids know that we can handle their strong feelings and that we don't judge them. Um, I can talk more about that, but certainly the idea of enjoying your kid and having fun with them, I mean, it, it's just, I mean, I, and it just changes. I mean, I just, um, I, <laughs> you know, I think the joy that I, I used to, um, I used to spend an hour a week with both my kids. Um, I, I, I read when they're about when they're, when they're very little that the way you become close to somebody is to spend time alone with them. So I, I figured I, there's. And a, I love that, by the way. I yeah. still do. 
I still do I feel, that with my kids. I know. I, 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 there's 168 hours a week, and I, if I can't find two for my two kids, and so, um, and it changed. You know, I, at one point, my, my son he was about seven or eight, wanted to play Batman. I had to, I had to be Robin. It was, it was it's boring, but 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 well, I, I, and then it then evolved into you know I I play baseball with them. I, I teach them to drive. Uh, we get ice cream. We do various things. But until they left for college. I spent an hour a week with them uh, on, on, on Sundays, just doing something that was mutually enjoyable. And, and I got that a lot from you and Ned's uh, relationship with your own children, that there was a lot of joy, playfulness, um, and a little easy on your feet kind of thing. It was yeah. not like all being stuck up and, and just trying to program these kids to be become something. Um, well, if I can share one quick story about my kids um, who are – have graduated from high school uh, and college. And interesting thing that um, they came down for Thanksgiving and we had a ritual. <laughs> we used to go to, um, uh, to Baskin Robbins to get a Sunday on ice cream Sunday on Sunday. And they came down and they still wanted to do get an ice cream Sunday on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we always yeah. got one and we shared it and we did that even though these are grown kids. So yeah, your stories yeah. were so relatable to me. Um, maybe can you walk us through, um, you mentioned some ideas of fostering and making connections, including eye contact, being present. Uh, but one particular thing I love that make me feel important is the pleading uh, request that our children have in their hearts. Um, so maybe tell us how can parents do that? Uh, sometimes they are not present because they're their minds are somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I think that um, you know, I just saw a study in, in China on what they call fubbing, which is when you, somebody's talking to you and you're on your phone, you know, and you're not really, and you're kind of dividing your attention, yeah, kind of pretending to listen, and um, and and I think it has a really bad effect on kids' mental health, and, and I think that there's times where we're just too busy. I've never heard of fubbing. Yes, it's p h u b b i n g fubbing. I'd never heard of it either. But I, I think the idea is that um, if, if kids need our attention and we're too busy, then we say, rather than trying to fake it, you know, do, do a half-assed job, but we, we say, wait a minute, this is really important to me. I, I want to get this right. I want to help you as much as I can. I want to hear this story. But I, I, I can't give you my full attention now. Uh, let, let's find a time to do it um, like that. So the, the community, I think part of the reason I wanted to spend time with my kids, I wanted them to know that you're important enough to me that I'm going to find two hours every week to, to spend with, with, with my kids one-on-one. -on -one. I want to give them that message that, that, as you said, that they matter, that they're important. And somebody once said that, that what, you, you should treat everybody like they have a sign on their head that says, make me feel important. Um, Love that. And, and so, yeah, we, we talk about family rituals. I mean, you're, you, uh, as another way of building connection. I, I remember when, um, when I was a kid, uh, at one point, I can't remember why, but um, some, I was going to my grandparents for, for Christmas Eve dinner, and they, they somehow they, they couldn't cook or something. So we stopped at a drive-in and got hamburgers and milkshakes. And for the next several years, it was <laughs> we did that every Christmas Eve. And I think that having these these, these family rituals or getting um, ice cream Sundays on Sundays is just another way to, to help kids feel like they're part of something larger than themselves. It's something that they, they're important and they matter. And, you know, uh, it's so interesting. I grew up in India and, listen, my parents, my mother was a 10th grade graduate. My dad, uh, you know, uh, went to night school uh, and um, had a very, very hard life. And, and in spite of that, they had such a great parenting approach. Uh, I don't want to say instinct, but they did have, and we had a lot of rituals. I was, in fact... Um, very fondly remembering um, this little ritual. So every summer we used to go to our grandparents' home and uh, spend a month or two uh, during, you know, um, Indian summer, which was very, very hot. And then when we came back, the night we came back, my mother used to make this one particular preparation called khichdi, which is like a just rice and multiple lentils and vegetables and one pot. And 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 we all would sit around the table and eat that and just reminisce on the whole summer. And 
that ritual became like this particular dish became a way to like nostalgically think about the past. And so my mother who just came back, um, she was uh, spending, um, she spent a year with my brothers and she has now come back to stay with me for a year or so. And I made that particular dish and we all sat around and thought about our childhood and how she used to feed us this. And now I was feeding her, which was just such a, so I know how deeply uh, that act of um, connecting through food or rituals is so meaningful because to your point, we are seeing each other as a fully developed, fully baked people, humans, creatures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. excellent, yeah. So, um, you know, you, uh, one of the interesting things after kind of really talking deeply about, um, I'm referring to your book about the, you know, theory of self-determination, uh, how people become in charge of their own selves. Uh, in this particular book, you have kind of concentrated on parents. And one, one of the ideas that you, you and Ned introduced is the idea of the parent as consultants. And, um, in, in this parent as consultants with emphasis on language of the consultancy, so to speak, how yeah. to become advisors and advice givers. So can you talk us through that? Sure. I mean, I think that um, I gave a lecture in, um, in Houston uh, before the pandemic, and I happened to mention what's probably the most elite uh, private high school in this area in the DC area, maybe in the whole country. Um, and, um, and after the lecture, this woman came up to me and said, I'm a psychotherapist at the Menninger Clinic, a really good mental health clinic in, in, in Houston. She said, we know this school in D.C. really well because so many of the graduates get into the top colleges in the country. But as soon as they get a B, or as soon as they realize that everybody here is as smart as I am, or as soon as they get ghosted, they, they get ghosted or, or their girlfriend won't go out with them, they, they can't handle it emotionally. So they take a medical leave of absence and come here for treatment. And she said, to a one. They simply don't have enough experience running their own lives, making their own decisions, solving their own problems. And I felt for, for, for many, many years, I, I, in 1986, I wrote an article about we should think of ourselves more as consultants to our kids than as their boss or the manager or the, the, their manager or their homework police. Because our goal, ultimately, in my opinion, is to for kids to be able to run their own lives before they leave home. So, so many, many kids you go to college, and they, I mean, I, we wrote an article in the New York Times in 2019 because by November 1st, we knew seven kids who had started college and were already home. You know, they, they just simply weren't oh, my ready. Goodness. They simply there's no evidence before they left that they could run their own lives, and so that's what that's my goal is to, for, is, is to, to help kids run their own lives. And I think as parents, what we want to do is help kids figure out who they want to be what kind of life they want, and how to create a life they want. And my feeling is that many parents feel that I, I got to be on my kid and pressure him to, to maximize his potential. And what that does is it burns kids out. What maximizes their potential is creating the life that, that they want, that they're really happy with. And so we... we uh, do, do you want to comment? Or do you, I'll take yeah, it. no, I was just going to say about maximizing their potential. Somehow I think hmm. the relationship is uh, to opportunities is of... Abundance versus lacking. I think yeah. they don't have a feeling that there's abundant opportunities on the horizon. They feel this is it. If they oh, didn't man. act, somehow something is bad is going to happen. Oh, it's yeah, it's crazy. And so we talk about the language of a parent consultant. And I think probably the two most important aspects are number one is, is the language of getting buy-in. So many parents tell me, you know, I told a million times or, or, or I, I keep trying to get him to see. You know, and Ned has this great cartoon. My co-author has this great cartoon. It's this dad holding his two sons by the nape of the neck and saying, listen up, boys, and listen up good, because I'm only going to tell you this a million times. You know? and, I, and, <laughs> and it just seems like such a waste of breath and a waste of energy. And so what we suggest is rather than laying stuff on kids, say, I've got an idea about that. Can I run it by you? Want to hear my opinion? Um, I wonder what would happen if you tried it this way. And what I say to kids a lot is I say, for whatever it's worth, and then I'll say opinion or a suggestion, but I want to make it tentative. I don't want to feel like I'm laying it on them because if we try to get people to change, we aren't asking us to help them change. As you said earlier, all we get is conflict and resistance. And, and so the language of getting buy-in, so, and also simply saying, is there a way that I could help? Right? I, I was giving a lecture in New York. Um, 
a few years ago and, and happened to be talking about this. And this woman got up in, in, uh, in the front row to told the rest of the facing the rest of the audience and said, this idea has changed my relationship with my kid completely. She's in ninth grade. She's in boarding school. And every, every, uh, every week we talk on the phone a couple times and it always turns into an argument because she brings up a problem. And I say, well, you need to do this or this or this. And she fights me on it. And it just evolves into the, this, this kind of un- unpleasant argument. La- last week she called and I just said, is there a way that I could help? And then it was fun. Then the energy changed and we could brainstorm together. And I wasn't trying to lay anything on her. And then, um, so this happens just all the time for, for me. And I, I just, it was, I, if I, I, when kids, parents often want me to try to talk kids into stuff. And I don't believe in doing it. I don't believe in trying to talk them into stuff. I say, I'll talk to them about it. And the second aspect of language is, is what we call the language of no force. Uh, you really can't mm-hmm. make a kid do things. And, and I, I, I just have great success influencing kids, I think, in a positive way by not trying to force them. And I, 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 <laughs> there's a family that it. came to – there's a very observant Jewish family that came to me um, a few years ago, a couple, two or three years ago, and <clears throat> right before the pandemic. And, and they said, you know, we're really distressed because our 13-year-old son is refusing to have his bar mitzvah, which in observant families are really a big deal. And he he was refusing because he didn't he didn't have religious faith and he didn't want to be a hypocrite, and and, and said what what do you advise? And I said to tell him obviously no one could make you do this. I mean we we what we could do we, we can't make you learn your 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 Bible portion. We couldn't drag you from the stage and move your lips. You know we couldn't make you do <laughs> so so no you don't have to do it. But we want you to know it's it's really important to us. It's really important to your your aunts and uncles and your grandparents. It's really important to the our friends who want to welcome you to the Jewish community. So I, I just hope you can find a way to do it. And two days later, after resisting for nine months, he said, okay, I'll do it. And then, then he negotiated. I mean, he said, I don't want to do it in front of the whole synagogue. But he did his, he did his bar mitzvah. And after nine months of fighting, I saw another kid who refused to take his medicine for ADHD medicine for six years. And mom wanted me to talk him into it. I said, I'll talk to him about it. I said, I don't want anybody to try to force you. All you got to do, if somebody tries to force you, put it in your cheek, go, go uh, uh, swallow, and then go spit it out. And I'll tell your parents the same thing. But you might want to make an informed decision. You might want to try and see what it does, because some people, it's like turning on a light switch. Because nobody's <laughs> going to make it take it. If, if, if it doesn't help, you don't take it. You tried it two days later. And, 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 um, and three months later, I got a letter from his mom, or an email from his mom saying he's got straight A's, up from straight C's. And that doesn't usually happen, as you know, but he didn't have any learning disabilities or anything. And, but I just, I, so the idea is, is that the parent consultant is that our job is to help kids figure out who they want to be, what's important to them, and support, and support them in moving the direction that they feel um, is, is important to them. And God, one of the coolest things that anybody ever said to me is that what I loved about raising adolescents was that every day when they come home from school, you get to see who they're deciding to be. And so oh, I, I, so I, I, I love, love that. That, that, that. That's our job is to facilitate that. And so we have this two aspects and two, two ways of, of thinking about communicating with kids that can foster that. Beautiful. And I, I have a little bit uh, non-glamorous term for it. <laughs> Instead of consultants, I call it pentoring. Yeah. You're a parent mentor. Oh, that's and, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. one of the framing of mentorship or consultants is you're consulted upon. You do not give advice until you're consulted. Yeah. And one of the things that I've done uh, with my kids is one first say, I'm so sorry, that sounds like a lot. Um, wow, that's a real difficult problem. I wonder what you're thinking about it. And then second, uh, you know, I've seen you take really complicated decisions and you think very deeply before you act. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything I can do. I'm, I, I'm happy to give you a perspective um, if you need it. Yeah, yeah. And that has been very helpful because one, they always come back and ask you. <laughs> they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and second is I think they really don't have a great um, range of ideas because ideas come from experience. You need some uh, having lived life in a complicated, I mean, in spaces. So if you have never had your a flat tire, you wouldn't know what to do when you have a flat tire. You can hypothetically tell people what to do, but when it's your turn. So I think 
that's very interesting phenomenon to me about your approach as you are describing this book about that consultant's language of consultant uh, is very much um, you're there to see success for your clients, as you say. You're there to yeah. achieve, help them achieve success they want, but you yeah. have taken the time to understand what they want. <laughs> well, it's it's true, and, and you know we we consider. We've been writing about this consultant idea for years, and we think about it in three dimensions, three aspects. One is, we, as you just said, Tushet, we offer help and advice. We don't try to force it down kids' throats. Second thing is, as you just said, we encourage them to make their own decisions. And I feel the best message you can give a teenager besides I love you and I'm crazy about you is that I have confidence in your ability to make decisions about your own life and to learn from yes. your mistakes. And I want you to have a ton of experience doing that because before you leave home, because that's how you become a good decision maker. And go with kids. And, and the third is simply kids need to be able to solve their own problems. Um, they, and they, they need to they sculpt their brain. So when something stressful happens, they go into coping mode as opposed to retreating or avo avoiding mm. uh, like that. So those three things. But the decision making, as you're saying, we say it has to be an informed decision. Because kids lack experience, just as you're saying. So we say, as, as long as it's an informed decision, as long as they're willing to talk with other people who know more about a situation than they do, then, then let them make their choice and go with their choice, go, go with their decision, unless it's crazy. <laughs> Meaning almost, <laughs> almost any reasonable person say, God, that's, that, that, that's never going to work. Yeah. And, you know, I've also said to uh, kids that I've worked with, parents and families I've worked with, that... You know, when you have a clogged toilet, you don't start enrolling in a plumbing school. Like, you know, you don't do that. Why? Because there's something called experts. That's right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they yeah. have spent all their lives understanding how toilets work. Yeah, and yeah. we call them plumbers and they right. have consultancy. You bring them home. And I think this wisdom to know when it's time to ask somebody is also that self-advocacy piece that you're so um, clearly advocating for. Um, and, and I think the, also the language of no force speaks so much to me. I think I would love if you can shed some light about this psychological fear that parents, teachers, adults who are in charge of ch little bit kids and particularly adolescent uh, is this feeling that if I'm, um, accepting, I somehow become permissive. Like if I acknowledge somebody's difficulty, immediately they will be difficult or they will never solve their problems. I, so I think there, there's a lot of shaming involved. There's a lot of reprimanding. Why did you not do your homework? Didn't you know? You know, like instead, like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry that you have three zeros now on yeah. homework. Well, I know. And I, I think that, that that's, we emphasize that in the first chapter of our book, the idea that first seek to understand, you know, it's a, try to understand before you judge. And I think that the empathy, the expressing, being, being empathic is, is, is huge in terms of building connection and validating kids' feelings. So, um, you know, I just, I, I recently, I, I was talking to parents about a kid who came home. He was like in eighth grade. He said, I'm so mad at Mr. Johnson. We took a math test. And he gave us all this stuff that, went, that he didn't even cover. And he said, I spent, hours, I, I spent hours studying for it. And the mom knew that, that dude, you, you spent hours, you know, watching football. You didn't really. She, she knew he didn't really study that hard, and she she she, she was inclined to say, "Come on, buddy, I did, you weren't studying." Or Mr. Johnson's a really good teacher. I know he wouldn't he wouldn't put stuff on the test. Kind of talk him out of it. And instead, the mom said, "What I said is that sucks." I said that, that must be really frustrating, and just, just used empathy to kind of reflect his feelings, and eventually said, "Well, maybe I didn't study as much as I needed to." Mm. You know, he, he got there. He got, and th that's what we find is when we take this approach of listening carefully, treating kids respectfully, not judging them, you know, th that they find their own reasons to change. And we, we ask kids in writing our writing, what do you say? We, we interviewed dozens of middle school and high school kids. We asked them, who do you feel closest to in this planet? And often they said a parent, but just as often they said an aunt or an uncle or an older cousin or a teacher. We said, what is it about this person that makes you feel so close to them? And invariably it said something in the order of, they listen to me without judging me and they don't tell me what to do. Mm. Yeah. You know, uh, this reminds me of uh, Julius Siegel, the psychologist from 70s, who says a presence of a charismatic adult from whom children draw strength. And I think that um, brings me to this next question 
which again, being in your presence, I just have a sense of calm. Uh, I know you got this. I can feel my energy. Then I'm adjusting to you. So this, this really, and you write a lot about this, this, the way of being present with, with, with children or just being present in reality or in, and, and you are a transcendental meditation practitioner. I am a, uh, a TM uh, practitioner and I am a certified in uh, mindfulness meditation. I've started uh, something called Buckhead, um, uh, mindfulness Mondays. We meet in the community. Um, I'm encouraged. I've been, for past one year, we have had 22 sessions just inviting the community to become a mindfulness community. Wow. So tell us a little bit about this idea of <clears throat> non-anxious presence. I think it's so hard, Bill. I'm I'm not sure parents ha- this is going this one is going to take a long time. <laughs> well, yeah, and so um I, I read. I, I didn't make that term. I wish I did. I, I love this term of a non-anxious presence. And and I, I gave a lecture at, at a, a Baptist school in, in Texas a couple of years ago, and um, it's it's a, it's a church school. Um, and uh, the, the the people who in the school told me that the Sunday before I came, the the the, the uh, minister told the congregation. I want to become a non-anxious presence in my family that I, which I love. So the idea is simply that, that, that any, any system or organization works better if the people in charge are not highly anxious and emotionally reactive. You know, we, we can be a calm presence. You think about it, as a parent, it's much easier to calm an infant if you say calm. Exactly. If, you've got, if you've got a three-year-old who's having a tantrum in the store, you can handle it a lot better if you stay calm. You've got a 15-year-old who flunks a test, it can be much more helpful to, to him or her if if you're if you're if you're calm and thoughtful and respectful as opposed to jumping on them and making it worse. And so, how do we do this? How do, how do you move in the direction of being a non-anxious presence? Well, one is that we remember that all of our all of our anxiety about our kids, all our worry and fear about our kids, is in the future, because the idea is, is that. Um, it, I, I, I've never found this not to be true. The idea is they're, if they're going to get stuck in this negative place and never get better. Um, and we realized that most kids turn out well. And I can't tell you how many kids I've seen who, who are complete disasters, especially kids with executive functioning problems with kind of immature frontal lobes who are, at, you know, who are a total mess at 13, 15, 17, 21. <laughs> Who, who two or three years later are, 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 are incredible. I, I got a Christmas card a couple of years ago from a family and, and the outside, it said, you were right. And I opened it, I opened it up and it's these three young adults uh, with their spouses and the parents wrote, they all turned out great. Oh. And this happens just all the time. When, when, when I learned in 1992 that, that this very rapid development of the prefrontal cortex between 17 and 20, which is the first, the first evidence that I saw that the, pre, the prefrontal cortex is late to develop. And we know with, with ADHD or significant executive function problems, it tends to be three to five years less mature physically. So the first thing is just realizing that our anxiety is, is not about what kids are going through now. It, it's about them getting stuck. And my, my daughter, when she was two, started to, she stuttered for a while. She stuttered, it got so bad at one point that she wouldn't talk. And I've never been more panicked in my life because I thought, okay, she, she won't talk. This, this, how, she doesn't talk. How could this get better? And a couple of days later, she stops. She stops stuttering. And, and, and I realized that all my fear wasn't about two-year-old stuttering. It's about she'll stutter the rest of her life and then be teased, that, that kind of stuff. That's catastrophizing. So the first thing is, is to take a long view and remember how powerful the prefrontal cortex development is. And re- remember... How many influences on their life, uh, on kids' life that aren't us? And there's <laughs> that could, could be positive influences. And you know, the, the, yeah. the to your point, I think the it's so interesting to me that God has given us this prefrontal system, which does future forecasting, and and this mental time travel. So when we travel back in time, it's nostalgia. When we travel forward in time, that's future prospection, very, very important ways to have the long view. But if you look at all the mindfulness practices, it's really turning off your <laughs> prefrontal system and, and so that you can link to your present moment. 
uh, after. So I think one of the things that um, my work, uh, I focus, help people understand the distinction between planning with the intention of planning. When you allow yourself to forecast, yeah, 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 then yeah, you're done yeah. with planning. Now it's worrying. It's not planning. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Lao Tzu said, if, if, you're, if you're anxious, you're in the future. If you're depressed, you're in the past. Yeah. Yes, I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, so. there was a movie. Did you do, in 2001? The kids, kids are all right. You remember sure. these two? Uh, it was so amazing to me that the the adult lens is so jaded because you look at children to be fixed than getting out of somebody's way to let them grow. What a different way. Like you're becoming this tree who's overshadowing shadowing the growth of a little sapling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get out of the way. And, and part of the reason that, that, that I feel so strongly about taking this point of view is that we don't always know it's in a kid's best interest. You know, the, yes. first time I went to, the first time I went to graduate school, I was in a PhD program in English literature, and I was so, so anxious and insecure that I didn't turn in a single assignment for 20 weeks, two quarters. Oh, and my God. When I talk with underachievers now, I say, I went 20 weeks, turned in nothing, top that. <laughs> but but my, my point is, when it happened, and I was, I was 23 years old, I felt like my whole life was going up in smoke. And it literally took me 30 days to realize it was the best possible thing that could have happened to me. There's no, there's no way that I should have been an English professor. I just I felt like an imposter, and, and I needed to do something different. And I think so often... What seems like a disaster, it, it, it turns out, it leads to something that we didn't anticipate. So I, I think mm. that that and and the, also two other things. One thing we talk about is, is certainly from a mindfulness perspective, this won't be surprising to you, which is radical acceptance. Meaning, for all we know, whatever happens, whatever is happening with our kids right now is what's supposed to be happening because we've never seen a plan for their life that somehow this is off course. So what we suggest is see what we see where they are right now, even if it's hard, is part of their path, part of the path that they, they need to go through to be who they're going to become. Mm. Um, and, and don't don't go against the fear that they're going to get stuck in a negative place. And the last thing is certainly, certainly what you were talking about, which is that calm is contagious. And if we have practices like meditation or, or other things that, that make us feel calm, that we can, we, 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 uh, in fact, that one of the a mantra of the Navy SEALs is calm is contagious because they go into these, these very stressful situations and they, they try to keep uh, calm so that they, they, it's a practice. So I think that that we certainly, um, I, as you said, I practice transcendental meditation and I, I know this family, um, that the mother and, and her teenage son who had 17 who has autism learned together and learned TM together, transcendental meditation. And uh, a newspaper reporter asked the son, what, what do you notice from meditation? What do you notice? And, and he said, TM calms the mind and it calms the mom. <laughs> made, her, made her more of a non-anxious presence, you know. You know, and, um, and, 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 and Ned's, uh, Ned's son, and Ned, Ned talks about this publicly, my co-author, so I can mention this, but uh, two summers ago, had a brain tumor. And there's family to get treatment for him and... Um, mm. And his wife was asked, kind of a month into this, how can you? How, how are you so calm? And she, she said, well, it must be the meditation. She started three years, she'd been meditating for about three years. So I, I do think that, that practices like that, 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 that allow you to experience that kind of inner state of calm, really benefit kids. And you know, the, the emphasis there is on the word practice. And the practice keeps in, insinuating or implying or really, really distinguishing that this is not a gift. It's a skill and a yeah. skill that grows with incredible commitment to repeating and finessing and building a muscle memory. That, that's, that's beautifully put. And, you know, and we, we have a chapter in our book called The Language and Silence of Change. And, I and love that. the idea is that we spend so much time trying to change our kids. And, and really, we feel that, that especially if our, if our kids aren't doing well, our most important work as parents is on ourselves. You know, it's, it's managing our fear, our, our anxiety, and, and kind of keeping things in, in perspective and remembering how long development is and communicating confidence in kids and, and going against that, that tendency to catastrophize. Um, uh, yeah. You know, and can I give you a little bit of a perspective uh, that, you know, because I, I was born and raised in India and a little bit of a background of Eastern practices, I find this very interesting tr 
trend uh, that has happened. So we have highly stressed lives in Western world. Uh, we have heavy emphasis on personal success. And somehow personal success is simply representation of personal effort. And, and there's an encouragement that you can stall, stand tall and have agency over your life by self-effort. And, and then these, some of the in Eastern contemplative practices that are introduced without the context of culture. So we, I'm seeing lots of stressed out people, mm, <laughs> you know, humming to themselves and anchoring without really believing in creating cultures and communities where they belong mindfully. Like, yeah. how do you have a town hall without confrontation? Like, how do you actually, um, you know, walk into a principal's office and express your grievance because you belong to a community where mindfully expresses concern? And not make policy change or something, something for one child, you know? Like, so I feel like we need to really bring this back into the context of mindfulness. I love like Ellen Engers, uh, uh, you know, um, she says, um, meditation is for post-meditation mindfulness. So why are we practicing? Because you will become more mindful and less mindless. And so, uh, so I think really this becoming mindlessness, your own mindlessness can be one of the reasons to um, cause grief to other people. <laughs> and you as a parent, your own mindlessness can really be like, uh, you know, you, were, you have many examples of parents just not listening to their kids and the kids not feeling being heard. And that can be a huge traumatic experience if I'm a child. <laughs> well, they say that kids listen better when they feel heard. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, you have, um, and, and this goes so much uh, on that agency issue, but um, maybe you can share a little bit some ideas for educators to motivate the kids as much as we are talking about parents um, uh, who are, because how do you achieve the same as a parent? You're in charge, maybe your own kids, and there's some blood relationship that makes you maybe even want to understand what motivates them, what interests them. But how do educators achieve that when they have to do group cooperation and also they don't have time to, in quotes, <laughs> wait for the buy-in to kick in? <laughs> I yeah, mean, I do not agree with yeah. that, but I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah so, so uh, Ned and I are working with a group of educators around the country who are, are focused on student-directed learning and, and really promoting autonomy and because that, that it turns out that a sense of control, a healthy sense of control or autonomy, it's absolutely the key to mental health. I mean, think about it. If you're anxious, your thinking is out of control. You'd like to stop worrying, but you can't. If you're depressed, forget it. You have no sense of control. If you have an addiction to something, forget it. Life is completely chaotic. And so and, and it turns out that the, the reason that, that, that cognitive behavioral therapy helps people with anxiety and depression. And the reason that meditation helps is in part is it increases the sense of control. It doesn't mean that you control so everything. It, 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 it means you don't feel helpless or hopeless or passive or, or chronically anxious or driven. Hmm. And so it's huge for mental health. And also that a sense of autonomy is crucial for that self-motivation. And yet in schools, kids' sense of control or autonomy gets lower every year they're in school. And by the time in high school, you got to ask permission to go to the bathroom. And, 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 um, and so we're working with these educators who are really interested in, um, in, in, in getting kids to kind of be responsible for their own learning and to direct their own learning. And, and it ranges from, there's, I, went, I visited a school in Colorado Springs um, where basically it's a high school where the kids run the whole time. And the teachers are mentors. They're they're, 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 they're Tentors, so they're teacher mentors, and um, and they, they really consider themselves as guides to, to the kids. Mm. Who you know, here's here's the here's the curriculum, and here's the stuff you got to master for the state tests and stuff. But let's figure out the best way for you to get them, for you to get the material. And I, I, I so ranges from school where, where that that's what they do to schools where they have half a day. We're committed to kids. Uh, kids have all their academics in the morning, then they have the afternoon they spend working on their own projects. Um, and so I, I think that it's not through skillfully. Some teachers are just masters at getting at bringing kids in and, and getting them to do the teacher's agenda. But I think the future of education 
is, is going to be on, on the student-directed learning because we have this mental health crisis in, in adolescence where, where the Surgeon General recently said that the, the status of adolescent mental health is the defining public health crisis of our lifetime. And just some new research suggests that the, the, the mental health of, of, of young adults, 18 to 25, is even worse. And the, the, the sense of control is so huge. And schools have the potential to really transform the life of young people by supporting autonomy and a sense of control. And we think about a sense of control in two dimensions. One is the subjective sense of autonomy or agency. And sec second is that the, the, the brain state that supports it, which is when the prefrontal cortex regulates the, the, the amygdala that, that senses and reacts to threat and the rest of the brain. And so we can get to that sense of control in part by promoting autonomy or agency and in part by making sure they get enough sleep meditation, things, things that, that strengthen the connections between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala that sculpt a brain that's just used to being having that healthy sense of control. You know, and uh, this reminds me of one amazing educator I, I had, uh, Esther uh, Wojcicki. Uh, she's the, um, you know, yeah. journalist, um, American educator, and mm -hmm. she actually... Uh, was the founder of the media. Uh, she is the founder of a uh, media arts program at Palo Alto High School. Yeah. And one of the things that she also, you know, you have heard of Creative Commons um, and she's the vice chair of that. But I think what's so interesting is in that school, to, to the Colorado school example you're giving, uh, students are given choice to set their learning goals and truly <laughs> lead their day to achieve the goals that that are, but they're also given this opportunity to see the transfer of these abilities and skills in real life. Like what to be a journalist? Like you're actually publishing a paper that everybody's going to read. Yeah, yeah. Then suddenly the language arts comes into focus, right? Yeah, it, exactly. And I I, I, I met Esther at, at a conference oh, in Colorado Springs. Yeah, we, we, we both went, went to the school, the, the high school that I mentioned. And the cool thing is that the, the, the kids that we interviewed, said it's so much less stressful here because we, we have a sense of control. The teachers who function more, as, didn't have to try to control the classroom and, and, and try to make them do what they want. They felt they had to do. They really supported the kids in, in, in defining their own ways of learning. The, the teachers, that they had dozens of applications for, for teachers from, from other public schools wanted to teach there because it's just such, such a healthier way to be with kids. And so many people get into education because they want to they have a positive influence on the kids. Yeah, and, and I think that one of the guys that we taught, middle school principal, where the, the kids spend half the day doing their own projects, said, I'm 60 years old, and I'm just not going to do anything anymore that's harmful to kids. And so much we do, so much of what we do in traditional schooling is harmful to kids. I'm not going to do it. Um, and I, I'm older than that, <laughs> but I feel that, that, that same way. And it turns out that the school, this high school, in, in, I, asked, I asked the head of the school in Colorado Springs, I said, how do you folks do on standardized tests? He said, we have the highest scores in our district, uh, of all the high schools in our district. And I said, why don't you emphasize that more? He said, that's not what we're about. They don't even need so, to. Yeah, I, I, Because I it's a byproduct of the environment they have created. We excel because we have agency over our lives. Yeah. What a great illustration yeah. of that. Well, you know, I think as we close, one of the most interesting parts that I spoke to me from uh, as I think about executive function and, you know, there's so much emphasis on behavior. So the underpinning skills, my inability to sustain focus, my ability to uh, exercise mental flexibility, my ability to plan, organize, systematize, uh, and create a, a roadmap for execution. All those skills are skills. But they may present themselves as behaviors, which gets a lot more attention and particularly framed as appropriate and inappropriate behaviors, um, they come, come across as failure to meet expectations. Right. So I would love for you to maybe talk about what, how you have written beautifully uh, about uh, healthy versus toxic expectations. Um, can you tell us uh, the distinction between the two and how parents as well as educators uh, can communicate healthy expectations to the students? Yes. I mean, I, I think that I started thinking about this in part because so many kids I see who are, who are really intelligent but have executive functioning problems, they, they, <laughs> yes. they feel that their intelligence is like a 200-pound weight 
because they feel that they're constantly letting people down, they're constantly disappointing people because they can't perform as well as they want to, as, as other people think they should. And so I started thinking about this and started reading about expectations. And it, uh, we, we know that they, until kids are 14 or 15, their, their placebo response is, is even stronger than it is for, for people as they get older. Unbelievable, yes. And we also know that teacher expectations have a profound effect on, on kids' uh, kids' confidence, as do parent, uh, uh, kids' academic achievement, as do parental accommodations. But healthy accommodation uh, expectations are expressed through confidence, expressing confidence. I believe in you. I, I believe you can do this. I, I have confidence that if you want to do this is important to you, I, I believe if you work hard, you can do it. As opposed to saying, you got to get those Bs up to As. You know, that, that, that's unacceptable. Um, and, and so because you, you, you start out talking about unconditional love. And I, I believe in telling kids, I love you no matter how, what you say, what you do, what you achieve, or how hard you work. Mm. I love you just as much if, you, you know, if, if you're a slacker. I, I love you just as much. And I think <laughs> that attitude helps kids find their own motivation and find themselves. And so I think that the, the idea is healthy expectations, communicate that unconditional love and approval and express through confidence in, in, in kids. And, and I believe that you can meet your own goals. Complex, complex things you love that, and, and the toxic is where it's conditional, where it's a demand because it feels threatening. And we know that kids function best in environments characterized by high challenge and low threat. And when 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 the idea is is, and so many kids tell me, God, they they completely they think they are their grades. They can't they can't they get a B. They can't go home and show it to their parents because their parents will go, go ballistic. This is toxic stuff. Um, and it's all based on the crazy, crazy idea, in my opinion, that the most important outcome of a kid's life, their, their young life, is where they go to college, as opposed to what kind of brain they're sculpting and who, who kind of person they're becoming. And when you look at the mental health problems in college, you, you, you at college level, you think, we, we got to start talking with kids about what really makes people happy, uh, which is one of my passions now because... Uh, I, I was talking to these kids in Houston, Chichetta. Um, uh, I've made several tips to Texas, but uh, I, I saw <laughs> with the, the, the student leaders one time. And um, and I, I said, how many of you want to be happy as adults? And they all kind of sheepishly raised their hand, like, duh, okay, yeah. Um, I said, well, what do you understand it takes to be happy in, in adult life? And this one kid no said, idea, probably. well, they said, we understand that if we can do a good enough college, everything's set. And I'm going, oh, my God, how, how could they be so far? Has nobody told them about Lori Santos, the, the psychology professor at Yale who, who lived with, with Yale undergraduates? It was struck by how they got themselves in the most elite college in the country, arguably, maybe in the world, arguably. And yet they, they didn't enjoy anything about being Yale. They're so stressed, so tired, so competitive with each other. that they, they didn't enjoy anything about it. So she started teaching a course on the science of happiness. It yes. quickly became the most popular course in the history of Yale University. And these young people, it's like, why didn't somebody tell me that achievement, it's important, but it's a very, it's a really small part of what makes you happy. Your relationships are, are, are as it or more important. Doing things that are meaningful, being deeply engaged in something you really care about. These are the things that really make you happy. Achievement's not trivial, but, it, but, it, but it's like 20, maybe 10, 20%. Of, of what really makes you happy. And I think so many kids grow up without having any sense of this at all because we focus, focus so much on achievement and prestige. And, you know, I think the uh, there's a um, fantastic book that I, that gave me has given me some tremendous insight into why um, um, one two books, actually. One is called Nobody's Normal by Richard Roy Grinker. He's an anthropologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the history of normal, like where we got this concept of people are and and the work and second book is called Work Won't Love You Back. And I think this identity that I am as good as the work I do is the bane of a cultural um um I mean you whenever you go, people ask you two questions. What's your name and what do you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then if you're a stay-at-home mom, you almost do nothing. Uh, if you have anything non-influential job, you are nothing, you know. But right. this idea that what is non-influential job is becoming even narrower and narrower and narrower. Uh, so to your point, I think I really love this, um, uh, This you know, I believe in you, I love you. Um, and, and 
the expectation is you do right by you. And and I, I really think one of the things that I say often to um, educators and parents that, you know, I think uh, hard work is hard and teach children to love hard work Yeah, because hard work, it, it leads to this very inner cycle, social, emotional state called pride, pride in your work. And I think that can sustain you, that that just pride that I do right things because I enjoy them. Like even, it was so cute. My husband was emptying trash uh, um, on Thursday night and to trash days Friday. And a self-respecting man that he is. And he not only removes the bag, he props that so everything goes down, removes the air bubble, ties it twice so there's no leak. And now people may think like, why care? Just throw it, dump it in the... And then he replaced the trash bag. And and I was just standing there watching this with glee, like the the joy and pride that he felt doing right by his home, you know, whatever it is. Same yeah. thing. I get up in the morning, I make my bed. Like I feel when I put... My, my mom was so funny. She was telling me the story. I, I, you know, when I remove my clothes, I remove the sleeves so they're proper. So when you come out, when it comes out of, so I'm future prospecting, but I think that that joy, not, not that I'm being like, I'm not telling anybody to do it, but just feeling the sense of pride and joy of doing right by whatever that may be yeah, yeah. Uh, is Beautiful. wonderful. Anyways. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. I, I tell kids, I want you to work hard. I want you to play hard. And I want you to rest hard. <laughs> yes, rest. So we did not get time, but I think people, listeners, this is one of the most fabulous books. So since we are on YouTube, I'm going to um, show you the book. So please check it out. Please buy it. If you're lucky and you have friends, you might even get <laughs> some signed copies. <laughs> so my, oops, I thought I had a signed copy. So this is my signed copy. I'm so grateful for you being here. As we end our episode, um, Bill, I always ask, which you did last time, but uh, do you have any new book recommendations for our audience? Well, I, I like, um, there's, a, there's a new book, uh, what is it, something, it's about focus. Um, oh, you know what I'm talking about? Um, this yes. journalist, um, I'm just blanking. Johan, on um, I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Johan. Harry? Yeah, Johan, how are you? you? Got it. You got it. That's right. It's yeah. It, it's about why we, we can't we can't focus as well as we used to. And, and there's, I don't agree with everything in it, but but, but there's a lot of really interesting uh, things in it. And um, I like that. Um, Love that. Yeah, I, I um, I I just keep, I keep going back to, to to Madeline Levine's book, The Price of Privilege, which which talks about Sunya Luther's research because so many of the families that I work with and so many people buy books. Are, are in affluent communities and in, in high achieving schools, um, and I, so and I think and so many people don't know that these kids in affluent communities and high achieving schools are so much higher risk than other kids are for d- depression, anxiety, and um, and uh, substance use disorders. Uh, so I, I I I continue to go back to that. Um, there's a really there's an interesting article. Um, so you, you know the construct of learned helplessness. Yes. <laughs> yes. So the, it's something developed in the 1970s and, and 80s, and the idea, the, the paradigm was these dogs would be in a cage and they'd be shocked and they couldn't escape, and so they had that experience several times. And eventually, they'd open the the, the cage door that the dogs wouldn't even try to get out. So the, the scientists Martin Seligman and Steve Mayer concluded that these dogs learned helpless. What what can I do? Why bother trying? And and what they wrote an article um, called "Learned Helplessness at 50. This is in 2017. It's what we got right and what we got wrong. And what they got wrong was the dogs didn't learn helplessness, they, they, but they failed to learn control. They failed to learn that that sense of control mm. that they can because when when you have that experience of controlling a stressful situation. What happens is your your prefrontal cortex activates. You, you go into coping mode and try to figure out what to do. And whenever your prefrontal cortex activates, it dampens down the stress response. And that's ideally that's why we say support kids in solving their own problems because we want kids to have a lot of experience. Something stressful happens, and rather than just, rather than swooping in to save them, let them figure it out. Let them prefrontal cortex activate because then they get less stress when you're coping. So, so it's not that stressful. What's really stressful is when you don't know, don't know what to do. 
where you feel overwhelmed. And By so, the yeah. way, did you know that this was uh, discovered by Pavlov. So, tell me. so um, I was at the trauma conference uh, with Bezel van der Kolk three weeks yeah. ago. Okay. And he mentioned this story <clears throat> that um, uh, Pavlov had a lo- lab and he's most known for this Pavlov's uh, reflex, right? Right, right. But he had these dogs in cages and uh, the river flooded. And the the river next to his um, clinic or his lab flooded, and all the water came into uh, the lab. And all the dogs that were caged and nobody was there, they tried to stand on their toes uh, to survive. The water came to very top of the cage. And then what happened is the water level subsided when they returned back to the lab they saw that these dogs were unable to participate in any experiments they were conducting. Were unable. So, so they were unable to participate in the previous uh, ongoing research. So the lab assistant came to Pavlov and said, we need to get rid of these dogs. They're just not performing. And so then Pavlov said, wait, but why? And then he studied, He began to work on them and understood that even when the cages, because they had this traumatic experience of being locked in the cages, when they and the flood happened, even when the gates, I mean the the cage doors were open, they were unable to activate their agency. Yeah. A lot, they yeah. completely lost bearing about their sense of control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's um, yeah. And it, it turns out that what what happens is is that actually that rather than rather than learning, you know, the, I, there's nothing I can do. What happens is is that the, the part of the brain that the, the part that, that does that you know, we have the fight, flight, or freeze. The part of the, the, the go, that, that triggers the freeze response is, is what happens, and, yes. and so you know that that they they won't do anything. Uh, as opposed to, but you know, why bother trying? It's just that they're so panicked that they freeze. Yes. Well, we were supposed to end a minute <laughs> earlier, so sorry, guys. But uh, well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you so much, Bill, for being uh, our guest. Uh, your conversations, uh, you're bringing and highlighting this incredible uh, understanding that our parents and educators need to have. We collectively as society, you don't even need to be a parent or an educator. Yeah. If you're running teams, if if you are a young person, part of a team, you need to understand how to really find motivation or motivating people. We Don't we all want... Um, to yield group cooperation, well, <laughs> people are likely to pursue goals that are important to them, and having a good read on what what's important to people can be really, really powerful. Yeah. So, listeners, uh, um, keep listening, keep leaving us review. If you loved what you're hearing, please share and and follow us on social media, and and definitely don't forget to purchase uh, amazing books uh, that our guest uh, Dr. Sticksrud had has written with his co-author uh, Ned and. And thank you so much for your time. And uh, thanks, Bill, for being with us. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.